Well, welcome back to another episode of Bite-Sized Virtue. This is the third episode of Season 2. We're in the uh, fourth week, though, of Lent, because I started a week late, unfortunately. Once again, we are continuing the conversation with my friend Paul, discussing technology and social media and a bunch of other interesting stuff. So as always, listen along, because it's not the same format. We're not picking apart a virtue yet. I have actually gone and recorded uh, some great stuff about the principle of love and the virtue of compassion with Clortos Dragon, and we'll be getting to that at some point. I might save that for uh, post-Easter. But for now, we're going to continue the conversation with Paul, continue talking about technology and the social ramifications of technology and all that good stuff. I'm I'm thinking of my own use of like Facebook. I mean, that's basically like that's almost essentially the only social media I use. I have a Twitter account. Um, I posted for about two days and I got bored. <laughs> um, I think I I think I have an Instagram account as well, but I I only use it to like look at other people so I can access other people's Instagrams. But that's I mean. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking like I like you know, I I hear a lot of people who will kind of have scorn for Facebook. They like, oh, we whatever. I'm like I love Facebook. I I I like the idea of it. And as you mentioned at the very beginning, like using um well, before we started recording, using it as a, as a almost a community town hall kind of form. It's great, whatever. But I mean, I have friends who, you know, I I'm in Toronto. I have you. I, I can keep in contact with really easily. Um, I have friends in Ottawa, I have friends in Edmonton, I have friends like halfway around the world in Australia stuff like that, that I can communicate with. Um, and it it can um, deepen and develop friendships from people who are separated geographically. And Definitely. like, you know, there's tons of, like my friend, I have, you know, I'm very blessed to have some very smart friends who are very um, engaged in a lot of interesting things. And so they would post post like links and articles on Facebook. And I'm like, this is really cool. I also want to, you know, so I go to the article and read it. And so, I mean, um, so I, I love that aspect of it. Um, so I like, that's, the, I think that's a very strong, um, argument for your initial comments about Facebook as a technology being neutral and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, but it, it's so interesting where technology, um, becomes to dominate all the social interactions. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still not sure if that's necessarily good or bad per se, but, um, you see how younger people. I've, I've, I, I do um, have the pleasure to interact quite a bit with university age kids and stuff like that. And whether it's their age or whatever, um, their 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 use of technology is constant, and it. Sometimes it feels like it makes them dumber. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just like, like I, I also I also work with a lot of younger people who are also in school as well, and in in my job, 
it's very common to use technology as a source of entertainment because you're usually a lot of times you're alone for like three or four hours you have nothing to do so you use your phone or whatever but the the amount of time people are just dumb about it and um like i can't even like tell you the amount of time that uh we've caught people who would be working a shift and they would be watching like hardcore pornography during their shift in a public spot and i'm just Awkward. like yeah i'm just i'm, I'm and then you catch up because we you know all the the data plan for a phone would be used up for the site for company phone um cell phone and then it just you go through the browser history and it's just like all right really, guys like like guys like are, are you serious um like one of the one of the funniest i saw was um the guy searched uh I can't remember the exact wording, but it was basically um, girls sexy farting. Uh, <laughs> okay, I guess I learned today that that's a thing. I learned it from Van Wilder, but um, yeah, but I'm just like, oh my goodness. So, I mean, um, the role of technology. I don't sometimes know, but the rule of technology, well, it rules our lives, is something else. And and I think it's similar to a, um, and this is more more of a European and North American thing. I think um, it's out out uh, in places outside of that very different dynamics, but. Um, Oh, the role of science and technology, and that they're the equivalent, um, is really interesting to me. Um, I think that I'm a, um, and you're seeing this kind of progression right now through the uh, post-secondary education system because of the costs. A lot of it, is, it has to do with the costs associated with getting a university degree now, right. um, where the the supposed demand is on practical skills like engineering, like you know law, doctors and stuff like that. Like you you know you got to go to got to go to school for something practical. You can't just go for philosophy. You can't go for history. You can't go for the liberal arts or the humanities. And in some ways, that's I think it's not necessarily backwards. And I get the reasons why we're. You don't want to come out and look, I did this as I came to school basically with like $45,000 in debt. And I was basically went into jobs that you needed your high school diploma. Right. And so with the, you know, consummate pay kind of thing. So I understand, I, I get that argument financially completely. Um, you don't want to be the barista with the master's degree. Exactly, because it, it it can create for a very crappy life um, economically, and you know your your prospects for marriage and progr- progressing your life can can be pretty dim. Um, on the other hand, um, the focus on these sort of like hard sciences. Um, is I think a reflection of a deeper, a deep, deeper cultural um, love 
and reverence for science with a big S and reason with a big R. Of course, like, you know, this all stems from the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and, you know, various developments afterwards. But um, it doesn't really... Businessmen aren't really that culturally critical, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the, the, because the focus is on making money. Like, you don't... Um, I don't... Somebody like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, both of them very intelligent men, um, you know, obviously like an extremely, extremely intelligent um, and successful businessman, but... Um, I don't think that they are as um, they don't have the breadth of thinking as uh, like a full-fledged historian or philosophy. Like I think that um, two of the smartest people I've ever heard talk um, is Timothy Snyder and Margaret McMillan. Both of them are historians. And they are so fascinating to hear them kind of go through and discuss um, various issues. Uh, Margaret McMillan's probably most famous for her book, Paris 1919, um, so, um, which is basically post-World War I, the, um, the settlement and the after effects from the post-World War I um, Treaty of Versailles and all that. Well, Timothy Snyder, is a historian for um, Central Europe, a history of Central Europe. And he's uh, basically best known for the book Bloodlands, which is basically um, discusses the lack of mention of the Holocaust um, between Hitler and Stalin and the fight, the, 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 the area... From 1939 to 1945, between Russia and Germany. Oh, so you're talking about in like Poland and yeah, Poland, uh, Ukraine, and stuff like that. And he goes very specifics into specifics about um, why it was so bloody compared to say other countries which didn't have that kind of like bloodlust or the um, you know like I think it's Denmark that basically had like zero Jews expelled and executed. Um, while Poland had, what, like 90% of the Jews um, killed. Right. But it's utterly fascinating to see them kind of pick up the threads and, and stuff like that and have a more, what, what I think, a, a fuller and a more um, humanistic and more, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but, but it's really fascinating that, um, they have this depth of insight that I don't think anybody, anybody who focuses on business or even engineers typically don't have. Engineers are typically like more about like, and this is you know obviously a gross generalization, but they 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 see a problem, they want to fix it. Well, yeah. well, that that's not I, I, to to my to my thinking, and this is. I think it's showing my own biases, whatever. But not everything is necessarily a problem per se. 
but it's more of a sitting back and listening, and that's how you kind of understand things better. Yeah. More fully. I mean, I guess to my mind, and I'm coming at this as someone who does actually have an iron ring on his one finger. I am an engineer by education. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a highly technical field uh, in terms of employment. But <laughs> in a way, uh, I'm going to draw a very, it might wind up being a very forced uh, metaphor here, or it might wind up being very obtuse, or it might wind up being very apt. I'm not sure. But I mean, think about what it takes to develop a game, right? Because I mean, a game obviously requires an immense amount of technical skill. You need your programmers and your engineers to, uh, to you know, wrangle the engine and write the code and make the actual um, model and uh, and scripting and uh, rendering of the game happen. You know, there's a huge demand for technical skill to create the foundation for a game that will then, you know, uh, allow events and images and uh, to be displayed to the player and to allow the player to then interact with those events and images in whatever ways the designers want to allow for. But at the same time, an engine on its own, code on its own, does not a game make there's a whole other body of skills that need to be brought in right so Mm -hmm. you might have your engineers and your coders and even your physicists because of course physics is a big thing in games now over here um, building the engine and basically getting the foundation of the game in place but then over here or over there or however you want to i mean i'm just waving my hands in front of the camera but nobody can see that because this is a podcast but you know over on the other side you have your artists who are putting together 3D models and developing textures and developing background art. And you have your writers. And, you know, you might actually, depending on the kind of game you're making, need a fairly strong uh, philosophy component to your writing team to lay down the plot of the game and to make it compelling and make it engaging to... Uh, <clears throat> to tell a story and to impart a message. You have musicians, you know, you may have historians. I mean, there are something like Kingdom Come Deliverance right now uh, is an excellent example to cite here, where this aims to tell basically a story set (coughs) in the historical context of uh, 14th century... Oh, Word eludes me now. 14th century Bohemia. Okay. Germany. Yeah. Sort of. So, you know, you play a blacksmith and you're basically caught up in the events of whatever war happened to be raging in the area at the time. And, you know, I I heard a podcast with uh, a couple of the guys from Warhorse, the studio that's developing this game. And, you know, they're mentioning that they're relying heavily on the input of historians to define the setting, define the events of the game, shape the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the historians are kind of getting something back out of it because for them, it's, you know, 
a way that they can actually model what life probably was like in 14th century Bohemia. It's a way they can visualize it. Yeah. You know, what previously they would only have had books and maybe some paintings to attest to. That's another thing. They've conscripted a whole army of painters who are, you know, painfully, painstakingly recreating um, paintings and church art and all the rest from that era to, you know, best portray accurately what you would have seen in that time period. You know, if you walked into a church in Bohemia, what kind of art would you see? If you walked into a palace in Bohemia, what kind of art would be adorning the walls? So they have a whole team of professional artists just making digital painting after digital painting to try and recreate this era in time with as much accuracy as they possibly can. So, you know, in terms of, yeah, putting together a game, you definitely need your strong STEM side, your engineers and whatever yeah. else to make it tick. But on the other hand, you need your artists and your philosophers and your historians and your storytellers to, on top of that foundation, create something that the player will find compelling. And I think in some respects, um, the same is true in the real world. You know, you, it's not that you don't need engineers. You do. Uh, it's not that you don't need scientists. You do. I mean, you know, it's a good thing that we develop medicines, that we have roadways and sewer systems and all the rest. And scientists and engineers are a big part of why we have that. You know, they help uh, shape the functional systems that enable our society to thrive and prosper. But at the same time, if that's all we have, we don't really have a society. We just have pipes yeah, <laughs> and pavement. You know, the society is then shaped and given its culture and its flavor by the artists and the philosophers and the historians and you know this whole other branch of education if you will um the non-stem fields that you know um basically on top of this foundation of roads and pipes and all the rest now create um <clears throat> the discourse that is a society, that is a culture. Two, I might also argue that, you know, I think to further your point, Paul, um, we oftentimes, it seems to me at any rate, almost place too much value on getting that college diploma. And I mean, not that a lot of good doesn't often come from having a college diploma. And, you know, I did make a bit of a disparaging remark just a little bit ago about uh, the barista with the master's degree. But at the same time, we need baristas and we need, you know, people picking up our garbage and we need people, um, you know, we need the people who don't necessarily have a college degree, but are still filling these roles that, you know, just because of how our culture has shaped itself are actually really important. I mean, yeah. 
you know, if all the coffee shops closed tomorrow because nobody was there to staff them, that would be impactful. I mean, we could all make our own coffee. It's not like society would grind to a complete halt. But it would be impactful, you know, like there would be a significant loss there because a coffee shop is so much more than just a place where you go and buy coffee, right? Coffee shops are a social context. For some people, they're a workspace, right? Because, you know, they have internet access. Yeah. Um, like there's a lot that would be lost if tomorrow all the Starbucks didn't have staff and couldn't open. So that's definitely um, when I did my trip to uh, Central Europe uh, in October. Um, particularly, as I noticed it in Germany, um, but Austria is somewhat similar, is that there's a very strong cafe culture there. And you see historically the, the, the role of cafes and pubs in um, developing and furthering social movements and revolutions. Um, you, uh, you know, I think Martin Luther... Um, had uh, very famous um, recordings of his pub talks and stuff like that, the things that were discussed in pubs. Even going even um, to the 20th century with uh, the Inklings and yep. where they met and stuff like that. And they always met at apartments and stuff like that. Like, so, I mean, like, um, a lot of the works of, like, Lord of the Rings and Narnia was significantly influenced by the ability to meet in a public space, like a pub or a cafe. Um, so yeah, I definitely, to, to like, you know, use your analogy. Um, I, I think the STEM fields are a lot of times they're the, they're the, they, they're like the bail bar. They're like the bones of, of the body of culture. But, um, these other things like the, uh, the artists, the poets, the, um, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're more like the, the ligaments and the muscles that kind of make the bones function even better. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, like, I'm, I'm thinking, and this is, I'm not sure if this is necessarily a, a an accurate or fair, um, description of, uh, issues that are hitting China right now. But it seems like to me that the Chinese are very, very much focused on STEM, but also there are issues of, um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure to say how accurate this is, but they don't seem to produce a lot of innovative technology compared to places like, say, Japan, America, um, and other places. It seems like that they, uh, it might have something to do with their economic situation, whatever, but they seem to be more copiers rather than innovators. Partly. Um, you know, this was interesting. Uh, another podcast that I listened to, was this The Federalist? Um, I can't remember. But this was in response to the just idiotic comment that uh, Donald Trump... Okay, I've now mentioned Donald Trump in a podcast. Well, that's... Maybe something that won't happen again, but we'll see. Anyways, he had made that comment about how we'll force Apple to manufacture iPhones in America, right? Yeah, good luck with that. But Yeah, and you know why? Because in a way, you're right. I mean, America has a huge technology culture. They do. Silicon Valley exists. And 
there's a huge amount of innovation that goes on there. There's a huge amount of design and development work that goes on there. Um, which you're right, doesn't necessarily happen in a place like China. But on the other hand, the point that was made was that, you know, that's because America really chose, uh, North America and. Uh oh. Oh, okay. I'm back. You're back. Okay. North America and even Europe to a degree <coughs> really made the choice to focus on that, you know, like that's where a lot of their STEM education drives toward. With China, it was different. Their focus went on to more the manufacturing side, um, you know, so it really is the case that, you know, America designs it because America has the educational environment and the um, technological environment to produce these amazing designs. But China has the infrastructure and the technology to then realize them. You know, China's where all the fabrication centers are because that's what they really put their focus on was being, in essence, the world's forge. And now, although this is interesting too, because for as much as they can manufacture, do you know what thing they can't manufacture? We don't have expression. <laughs> well, I meant in terms of an actual physical item, but yes, that too. Um, no, in terms of an actual physical item, do you know what they can't manufacture? They can't manufacture an entire ballpoint pen. They can manufacture every piece of the ballpoint pen except the all-important ball. They actually have to import the little steel balls for their for the ballpoint pens that they produce on mass. Why why is that? You know, it uh I mean when you're talking about a little metal ball that's perfectly round and like 0.2 millimeters wide, yeah. that's an amazingly precise uh manufacturing mm. process and unfortunately they evidently just don't have um the capability to to produce that because they've 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 not uh developed it or researched it enough and it's just cheaper for them to um import this import you know millions and billions of these little balls from countries that do have the fabrication centers that can handle it rather than you know bring the program in-house as it were uh, at this point in time, I mean, if yeah. they played their cards a little differently two decades ago, it might be diff it might be a different story. But the way it is now, um, <clears throat> their focus was other. Their manufacturing focus is other. And so, when it comes to making ballpoint pens, well, maybe they have to buy the little metal balls from. Uh, there's two or three countries I think that supply them. So, yeah, that's a. Uh... I guess that's a living example of competitive advantage, I'd imagine. I suppose, yeah. Well, I think I'm going to cut it off there. I think that's going to be a wrap for this episode of Bite Sized Virtue, and I hope you enjoyed it. As always, um, I will see you next week. We will be continuing this discussion, most likely. And until that time, until next time, be virtuous. <laughs> <laughs>